Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. The Constitution and its amendments are the foundation of our democracy and the center point of so many controversies in American politics. We decided to take these important amendments one by one and go back to basics. If freedom of speech and the right to bear arms are enshrined as fundamental values, we want to understand them on a deeper historical level. We put together this series on the amendments to do just that. After a brutal war for independence, America was divided on the issue of state versus federal power. The American people had just won a war against Great Britain, a government they believed had too much power. The Founding Fathers believed it was necessary to protect those rights and arm the people with the ability to fight back, should the U.S. government ever prove too tyrannical. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But in the past 250 years, guns have been used in ways that the Founding Fathers never intended. Gang violence, school shootings, and assassinations have rocked our nation. And many American citizens are questioning our right to bear arms. Now more than ever, it is important to know and understand our rights. We as a nation cannot move forward unless we understand our past. This is Constitutional Primers. 
President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. This is being called one of the worst school shootings in our nation, and SWAT teams are still sweeping Columbine High School looking for more explosives. I'm not going to let somebody tell me that I can't protect myself or protect my family. I said that this could have been my son. Another way of saying that is uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me 35 years ago. For this conversation about the Second Amendment, we reached out to our audience to say, who do you know who has a really scholarly look at the Second Amendment? It's really hard to find new discussions about the Second Amendment. We all kind of have the same tired, pry it from my cold, dead hands mentality or Australian buybacks are the way forward. And it's just tough to find something new to say about the Second Amendment. And so multiple people recommended Kristen Goss, who is the Kevin G. Corder Professor of Public Policy at Duke University. And Dr. Goss and I had an extended discussion about her scholarship. Her areas of expertise are firearms and crime and gun control. Now, you'll hear that Dr. Goss has a perspective on gun control. This is not a completely neutral look at the Second Amendment. And we're going to follow up on this a little bit later and talk about the perspectives of people who see the Second Amendment as much more rigid than Dr. Goss does. But I hope you enjoy this conversation that comes from a research and academic perspective. And I thank Dr. Goss so much for her time and sharing her expertise with us. So I'm an associate professor at Duke University in the Sanford School of Public Policy, and I'm a political scientist. I study how everyday people participate in public life to affect public policy. And I've had a uh, focus on uh, guns for about 20 years. So I wrote uh, what I guess is probably the book on the gun control movement, although that um, that book is now more than 10 years old and very out of date because things have changed so much um, in the past decade. And I've also uh, written a number of things about gender. So I have a book about women's organizations as well. I was just watching before we started an interview that you did about um, sort of the paradox of women's political participation. So it does seem like you have a, a wide ranging portfolio of issues that will be interesting to our listeners. I'm very excited to be talking to a woman about gun control and the Second Amendment. I'm wondering when you so you you write and talk about this issue frequently. Where do you like to start? So when I think about the gun debate, I think there's a sort of an enduring truth that is um, still somewhat true, but is really being challenged recently. And that is this idea that the pro-gun side is well-organized, intense, single-issue voters, and can have influence beyond their numbers over policy debates, and that the other side, the pro-gun regulation side, is um, you know sort of diffuse, unorganized, doesn't feel intensely, doesn't vote on the issue. And you know I think there have been times in our history where there's a grain of truth to that, but I have long thought that the that the so-called intensity gap between the pro-gun and the pro-gun regulation side is really more of an organization gap. That the pro-gun side is much better organized and more smartly and strategically organized at the local, state, and national levels uh, than the pro-gun regulation side. And I've done some writing in recent years, however, that suggests that while the pro-gun side is still, you know, dominant in terms of numbers and, you know, perhaps in terms of, you know, kind of organization, uh, the pro-gun regulation side is catching up pretty fast. And there have been a number of reasons for this. So the first 
is that there's just more money available now. So, you know, raising money for causes like this is always going to be a challenge, but some philanthropists and, and everyday people have been willing to step up and, you know, provide resources. So all movements need resources. Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, that resource gap um, is still considerable, but it's um, the program regulation side is, you know, getting enough money to do what it needs to do. And part of that, uh, the kind of closing of the resource gap is that, you know, social media and the internet have really lowered the costs of organizing. And so, you know, if you think about the struggle that the pro-gun regulation side has, you know, they, you know, if you, if you care a lot about gun control, you may not automatically know how to find other people who feel the same way you do or where to meet naturally to, um, you know, sort of organize, plot strategy, mobilize and so forth. Um, and the Internet, in particular, Facebook has provided these virtual spaces for people who might not otherwise find each other to find each other, to reinforce each other, to build a sort of identity community um, and to sustain those ties, you know, online during the gaps between offline participation. So, you know, the resource um, thing is or the, the closing of the resource gap is pretty significant. Um, the other, another significant um, development is the, that there really is now a critical mass of um, survivors and family members who are in this for the long haul. When I started studying the gun control movement or non-movement 20 years ago, I was really mystified as to why victims and survivors were not more involved. But I think one thing these mass shootings have done um, is that they've created instant networks of people who care deeply about this issue and are not going away. And it really, I think, started in earnest with Virginia Tech, which happened in 2007. Those families really bonded and have, you know, started wrapping in and incorporating, um, you know, victims from subsequent shootings, as well as from everyday gun violence, which is still where, you know, the lion's share of the, you know, homicides are happening. And so these, you know, the, and, and gun control groups have gotten really smart about mobilizing and incorporating and utilizing the sort of moral voices of victims and survivors, not only as sort of volunteer activists, but also as um, staff members in high level positions. So the gun control activist in my home state of Virginia is the mom of a girl who was shot at Virginia Tech. Uh, and she, you know, she is relentless and she is taken incredibly seriously here in, in my state. So so I would say those, you know, so the resources, you know, um, and the sort of online innovations and um, the incorporation of victims and survivors have been really significant developments. And, you know, Moms Demand Action, I think, has quickly become the um, kind of the grassroots base of the gun violence prevention movement. And, you know, that was something that was born out of Sandy Hook. Um, but it's continued to grow, which is unlike what we saw with the mom's movement that arose in the wake of the Columbine and some of the other shootings in the late 1990s, which, um, you know, had a huge march, but didn't have a, you know, the kind of capacity and the organizational structure to really um, remain viable and grow for years thereafter, although it, it did remain viable um, for a number of years um, after the big march in 2000. Dr. Goss, I noticed that you are talking about the pro-gun movement and the pro-gun regulation movement. 
And I think that we might be having two different conversations in the United States right now. It seems like the NRA and some of the pro-gun side of the debate talks about it as you're pro-gun or anti-gun, whereas a number of us are having a conversation about both being pro-gun for those who want to have guns and pro-gun regulation. Can you talk about kind of the evolution of that split in the population over time? Yeah. I, so my first book, um, which was, you know, in, in essence, it was sort of an analytical history of the gun control movement, um, really took to task um, the um, sort, of, sort of the early gun regulation groups for, um, you know, sort of creating this, um, these um, policy goals that really were not cognizant of the fact that we have a strong and deep gun gun owning culture in the United States. We have a lot of people who have firearms who use them responsibly. The vast majority of gun owners will never do anything bad with their firearm. And, you know, I think the early gun control movement, you know, sort of created an environment in which, um, you know, sort of law abiding gun owners, like those in my family, like those in many people's families, you know, were put on the defensive and were being treated in a sense like they were, you know, dangerous or um, bad citizens. And, uh, you know, that it, that wasn't the only cause for the NRA's sort of turn toward a sort of uncompromising stance, but I think it was one of them. And the pro-gun movement, and I call it that intentionally because I think in the time that I've been studying the, you know, this issue, gun rights groups have gone from, you know, viewing firearms as, you know, necessary tools of self-defense and defense of democracy to viewing them as sort of affirmative goods in public spaces. And so it's a subtle shift, but they've gone from being kind of, you know, necessary lethal tools to affirmative uh, markers of identity and of patriotism and of, you know, social organization. And so, you know, I, I often will say that the gun debate is really not a policy debate. Um, it's a debate over identity and sort of the vision of kind of what the good society would look like. Uh, and we really have very different ideas about that. And I think that explains how you can get findings like, you know, majorities of gun owners, majorities of NRA members support background checks on private sales. So, you know, kind of commonsensical, modest gun regulation measures. But you know, fight any sort of, um, you know, sort of political movement toward firearm regulation in practice. And the NRA has done a very good job. You know, in some ways it was a precursor to what the, you know, sort of the campaign rhetoric of President Trump of creating um, and exploiting this, you know, kind of real um, ideological and difference between people who live in cities and people who live in blue states and people who live in small towns and suburbs and, you know, in, in central parts of the country. So it has really, unfortunately, become a, an identity, a debate over identity and over civic worth. And I think that is getting in the way of, you know, lawmakers reaching policy goals that would be broadly supported. But you see that as a relatively recent convention. I mean, I get emails from people who explain to me that this, the pro-gun culture is an essential part of the American fabric, as though sort of the cultural identity marker is synonymous with the constitutional underpinning. It doesn't sound like that's always been true. 
So if I think about, you know, my dad and grandfather's generation of gun owners, you know, firearms were a part of life. They were a part of, you know, they were they were tools of self-protection or hunting varmints or or whatnot. So in that sense, you know, I think guns obviously have been a, a part of our, our culture. They feature prominently in, you know, in kind of classic movies and, and that kind of thing, probably more than in other countries. But the idea that, you know, guns are fundamental to your sense of self-worth, you know, that there are people questioning your self-worth if you have a firearm, you know, that, that I think has been a kind of 20th century, you know, late 20th century, really, development. They're both, you know, there's, there's a little bit of truth to both understandings of culture, but they're slightly different. When you talk about gun regulation measures, how much do you talk about sort of the physical weaponry? I find that a lot of conversations that I have about, quote, common sense gun regulation, a gun owner says to me, it's not common sense because most people don't know anything about guns. And so they say, let's ban assault weapons. They don't know what an assault weapon is. That's a really good point. And I think, you know, historically, I think that's a fair point that, you know, gun owners know, have known traditionally a lot more about the physical features of firearms than a lot of gun control activists who have just wanted to say, you know, ban the damn things. And, you know, it, I think it is complicated. You know, there's there's some I think there's some truth to the argument that, you know, the way we decide define assault weapons as, you know, a, uh, you know, firearm that has you know, two or more of these, you know, this list of features, you know, versus one or more of this list of features. You know, I can understand how from a gunner's perspective, that seems like a, you know, a silly distinction. And, you know, I am not uh, going to claim to be an expert on the ins and outs of every feature that you can apply to your AR-15. I, you know, I have heard ATF agents and others who are experts on that say that actually some of these features do make a difference in the you know, in the capacity of the firearm to be, you know, shot accurately, to be reloaded quickly, to be concealed in a certain way. You know, I think the, the you know, the bottom line is I think all policy is, is complicated. And, you know, whether you're talking about environmental regulations or gun regulations or abortion regulation or whatever, you're going to get into these details, the devil's in the details, right? These details that actually do matter, um, you know, I would like to get to a point where policymakers are actually grappling over those details and, you know, so that we can come up with policies that will actually save some lives um, without, you know, overly burdening people who are law abiding gun owners and are never going to do anything bad with their guns and have, according to the Heller decision, a constitutional right to have a handgun in the home for protection. And is that your view of what the Second Amendment guarantees in light of Heller, that you are constitutionally guaranteed the right to have a handgun in your home for protection? I would not second guess the Supreme Court, as I do not have a law degree, nor am I a justice. Do you think that there is an understanding among the general populace of the Second Amendment that aligns with Supreme Court precedent? Or do you think the general populace views the Second Amendment in a more expansive or restrictive way? then it's been interpreted legally. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen polling on that. You know, my guess just, and this just speaks to generally people's understanding of politics. You know, my guess is that people don't have a, most people don't have a clue, you know, about the kind of the specific holding in the Heller decision and the McDonald's decision that came two years later. Um, you know, most people have trouble naming their congressperson or, you know, knowing how many branches of government we have. So um, 
you know, I, I think people know generally that the Second Amendment is the one that protects gun rights, uh, whether they would know how courts have ruled on challenge Second Amendment challenges to assault weapon bans in the states and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I would be I would be doubtful. Um, you know, gun owners, presumably those who are politicized, at least, are um, probably much more aware of those findings and holdings because they would per- be relevant to to their lives more than to sort of somebody who doesn't own a firearm, presumably. We will be right back after this short message from our sponsor. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
It seems to me that one of the challenges we have in having a debate that grapples with the details of policy, as you just described, I'm not sure that our objectives are very clear to each other, especially since we often talk about gun regulation in the wake of mass shootings, uh, which gun owners are then quick to point out most gun violence is not done in mass shootings, right? So how would you articulate the objectives of sensible gun policy? So, you know, I would answer that the way I would answer a question about any kind of policy. The way policy scholars think about this and policymakers should be thinking about this is, you know, do the costs outweigh the benefits? So, you know, any regulation is going to impose a burden on somebody or some entity, you know, whether that's civil rights laws or abortion or guns or whatever. And, you know, we ideally as a society or as lawmakers representing us as a society, um, you know, go through a process of weighing the costs and benefits and trying to minimize the costs or target the costs in ways that um, make sense and, you know, maximize the benefits. So, you know, I think the gun control movement or the, you know, the early groups in the 1970s, we're saying, you know, the way you maximize a cost is you have a big, bold proposal. You have a national ban on handguns. That'll just take care of the problem. And, you know, if, and, and, and certainly if we banned all, banned all guns and confiscated all guns, there'd be less gun violence. That goes, I think that's axiomatic. Uh, but what would be the cost of that, right? I mean, we have a Second Amendment. There would be a cost to constitutional rights. There would be financial costs. There would be you know, probably civil violence, there would be cost to that. So the gun control movement, I think, has gotten a lot smarter about saying, okay, how do we sort of narrowly target the costs on people who should be bearing them and, you know, kind of, and get the benefit there and sort of minimize the cost to other people. So for example, we have a series of what are called prohibitors. So there are people by under federal law who are not allowed to purchase transfer or own a firearm or possess a firearm. And so these are people who have been adjudicated mentally defective, hate that term, but essentially people who have been um, involuntarily committed to a mental institution. So people with severe mental illness, supposedly people who are alcohol and drug abusers, although that's really hard to enforce people who have, who under restraining orders or have been um, adjudicated for misdemeanor domestic violence Anyway, people who are fugitives, it goes on. So we have these federal prohibitors. But how are those going to be enforced? Well, they're not going to be enforced by federal law enforcement, you know, the ATF, because there aren't enough agents and they don't do that. The way that these laws are, you know, probably most practically going to be enforced is by state and local law enforcement. If that's going to be the case, you need state laws that, you know, kind of replicate those federal prohibitors and empower law enforcement to um, enforce them. So if, if I become a mis, you know, if I become guilty of misdemeanor domestic violence and I own firearms, what happens to those firearms? You know, does the judge require me to relinquish that limb? You need a law for that or you need a process in place for that. You know, do the police come to my house and get the gun? They need to be empowered under state law to do that. There needs to be resources and police forces to, to do that. So there are these kind of implementation gaps at the state level that I think have gotten less attention over the years and are certainly not part of our public debate ever. But the gun control, gun regulation forces are really starting to kind of move on those kinds of gaps. And, you know, so to my mind, you know, that's the way that I would think of that as an effective policy. We, you know, I think people can agree across the aisle that people who are beating their spouses 
was threatening his spouse with a firearm, probably shouldn't have a firearm. But we needed a way to get those firearms away from those um, offenders and to prevent them from getting their hands on firearms. So, again, the cost would be borne by the bad guys. Um, but, you know, people who are not abusing their spouses would be able to keep their firearm for self-defense or recreation or whatever. So, you know, in my mind, we should always be thinking about how to kind of do the most good with the minimal cost. You know, as you're talking about that, it makes me realize that there just isn't much depth in the public conversation, because I think what you said is an expanded, sensible version of something I hear from gun owners a lot, which is we don't really need new laws. We need to enforce existing laws. And that sounds true based on what you just said. And I think that they are absolutely right about that. That's been a an NRA mantra for as long as I've been studying this. We don't need new laws, just enforce the ones already on the books. The the twist on that though is that sometimes to enforce the ones on the books requires a passage of new laws. At so the when state you level, that, yes. You know, or at the national level. Mm-hmm. The Brady Bill, what is the Brady Bill? It created a background check system for people who buy firearms from licensed dealers, right? Those prohibitors were on the book books before, but there was no way of enforcing them. So before the Brady Bill, you know, I go to a gun store and the gun store owner says, are you a felon? And I say, no, it's all honor system. Right. And then I get to buy the gun. So there's no way of enforcing those prohibitors. It's all it's it's, you know, the the purchaser just says, yeah, no, I'm not prohibited. Okay, here's your gun. So the Brady Bill created a system. Well, let's check, you know, let's call a number and see if, you know, You, the buyer, happen to be in this database of people who are, you know, uh, uh, prohibited from buying a firearm under federal law. That's all it did. So it was essentially enforcing a law, creating a mechanism to enforce the law we already had. And, you know, I think a lot of these, you know, so, you know, and I think the gun regulation movement has moved in that direction toward those kinds of firearms. Now, in the wake of the Florida shooting, you know, will there be a new push for a federal assault weapons ban? I don't know. Um, you know, that would be, that would be different. That would be more of a, an old school policy and, um, intervention of, you know, sort of banning a class of weapons. Um, one thing that I think Senator Feinstein has, has introduced or is about to introduce a bill that would raise the age of purchase of AR-15s to, so that they would be treated more like beer, um, and, you know, less like, you know, getting a driver's license or whatever you do at 18, because you get a driver's license at 16. So lottery <laughs> but, tickets, right? You can buy lottery, lottery tickets, tickets at 18. Get at 18. I don't, it's been a long time. So bringing the age up, whether that's something that, you know, the, the Congress could find agreement on, I don't know. It's an, it's something I haven't heard discussed. You know, it, it would actually, you know, maybe fit in that category of, you know, kind of, placing the burden on people who have, you know, who are at heightened risk of gun violence. So we know that rates of gun violence offending are concentrated in those kind of late teens to mid twenties, like that, that, that group of people, um, mostly males, you know, commit a disproportionate amount of gun violence, you know, whether it's mass shootings or kind of the everyday violence that we have in our, in our um, society. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast15. From an academic perspective, I think federalism is a really interesting component to the entire conversation about guns. Do you see a more effective route to gun regulation as the federal government sort of setting policy that then needs to be implemented by the states or state by state regulation of guns themselves? You know, I think the federalism question is is really in a way at the heart of the debate. So we are a big, diverse country, and there are really different levels of gun ownership and opinions about firearms and their place in society across the U.S. And so, you know, one of the things we like about having a federal system is that that 
that states allow for allow us to accommodate a diversity of opinion and and political ideology. So on some level, you know, you want states to be able to make laws that are tailored to the citizens that live there. The problem, of course, comes in when, you know, you realize that people and firearms travel easily across state boundaries. So, you know, Indiana is a more pro-gun state than Illinois. A lot of the reason Illinois has, or in Chicago in particular, has, you know, a, a, um, a you know, a reasonably high um, gun violence rate is that those firearms are coming in from Indiana, which is just, a, you know, whatever, a few miles away. And, you know, that was the inside of the early gun control movement, which is, you know, we, if we're going to do anything for it to be effective, we've just got to do it nationally. You know, and I think that I'm not giving you a very good answer because I think it is a really, really difficult question. Again, you're sort of trying to balance competing concerns, which is you want to balance, you know, states making laws that reflect the interests and um, perspectives of citizens. But you also want to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, states have invisible boundaries for, for the purposes of trafficking firearms and, and so forth. There have been attempts in the past to kind of create policy that strikes a balance between those two. So for example, Virginia used to have a one gun a month law. So and it was intended to prevent people from coming to Virginia, buying a bunch of firearms, and then taking them up to New York and Massachusetts, which have much stricter laws. And the that that law was repealed a few years ago. And from what I've seen, you know, Virginia has again become a source state for firearms in, you know, in, in other states up the I-95 corridor. You know, there had there after Sandy Hook, there was a proposal to stiffen penalties for trafficking firearms, um, which would try to get at this question where states could have the autonomy to pass the laws that make sense there. But, you know, try to get at this issue of weak law states undermining strong law states. So, yeah, I don't I don't have a good answer for the federalism question, but it is really at the heart of a lot of a lot of this discussion. And I and I would add, you know, I think the current political discourse, which really has set, you know, quote unquote, coastal elite liberals against, you know, um, everyday people from the heartland um, is really not helping this debate at all, because that that political rhetoric, which sort of pits us against each other and encourages this kind of division, you know, really does, you know, underlie in a way the the debate over guns. And so in a sense, guns, the debate over guns becomes kind of a mirror of kind of the larger political debate that we're having right now and larger divisions over kind of our identity as Americans. Thank you so much, Dr. Goss. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for doing your podcast. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Special thanks to Elise Knapp for narrating these special intros and to Dylan Garvin and Studio D podcast production for music and sound design. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 